Today's episode is brought to you in part by ExtraHop. Think analytics, folks. ExtraHop is the enterprise cyber analytics company delivering performance and security from the inside out. More on ExtraHop later in the show, but if you just can't wait, visit extrahop.com slash packet pushers to find out more. Heavy Networking by the Packet Pushers is sponsored today by IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash packet to save an additional 25% off your membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. Just be sure to use the code PACKET25 at checkout. That's PACKET25. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Network automation seems to be driving many of you towards Python. You're learning how to code, or at least you're trying to. If you could just get that tool written, it would help so much. It's hard, though. What with projects going on, not enough people around to get all the work done, and a huge network maintenance event on the horizon that's stressing you out, and your boss reminding you that, hey, you got to take some time off, you're going to lose it, and dare I say, technical debt? Hey, you got to maintain that tool if you ever do get it written, right? Maybe writing your own automation tools isn't your job as a network engineer. Maybe you need someone to come alongside of you like a software developer. Our guests today are Brian Gleason and Jeremy Schulman. Brian has recently started a new job where network automation is really important and handled in a forward-thinking way. That drew him to the opportunity, and Jeremy's been in the world of network automation for as long as we've been talking about it on heavy networking, having worked for vendors, his own startup, and now for Major League Baseball. So today on Heavy Networking, we are going to talk about what an ops team looks like when automating. And uh, Jeremy, let me open this up to you. You've been on the show before. Um, We've been following your career with great interest for a long time. Now, (laughs) would you just set set this up for the folks? Explain the different types of automation projects and tools that you've worked on and and who uses them. Yeah. So first, thanks for having me. Um, It's great to be back. And um, I'm now at Major League Baseball, where for the very first time in my career, um, I'm on the customer side. So I'm starting to see how the real world operates from a, from a different set of perspectives. Because when you're at a vendor, you kind of see things a certain way, you build, build tools a certain way. And now I'm working in an organization where we have uh, an engineering team, we have a network operations team that is separate from the engineering team, and then we have broader operations teams that do other functions uh, outside of the network, but need to interact with networking. So the different types of projects, I kind of put them into three different categories. And this is very, very important as we kind of have this discussion because it, it, it gets into scoping and what I would call blast radius. There are three very distinct types of, of automation projects. There's projects that I would do for myself, meaning I'm gonna build a tool to help me get my job done a little bit faster. Uh, nobody cares if that tool breaks other than me, right? And then there's tools that I might build for other folks in the engineering team. Like let's say that we use Ansible and somebody wants an Ansible playbook built, you know, pretty quickly and they would like me to build it for them again. You know, it's being built for somebody else, but there's a a circle of trust, if you will. So the blast radius uh, isn't that, isn't that bad. If something goes wrong, I can fix it. Nobody really knows outside of the engineering team. Uh, But then you get into this broader problem of, building software that other people depend on outside of your organization, whether that's network operations or, or other operations teams outside of, of the team. And that's where things get, like you said, a, a bit more interesting because when people rely on that software for their day-to-day jobs, there's an expectation of durability or resiliency or reliability. And, and really, this is where I kind of believe uh, a, a software engineer really comes into play. Whereas in the other cases, um, it doesn't necessarily, it's necessarily not needed, right? You know, so what I want to try to relate in this conversation is that 
Um, it's not that network engineers uh, shouldn't do automation. I believe that it's great. They should do as much automation as they want to or can do. But there comes a time when the organization had comes up with a strategy to determine, should we you know, do more with network automation? And if so, how are we going to accomplish those tasks? And understanding the, type, the different types of automation projects will help them determine when it would be a good time to bring in a software engineer to help them out. So if everybody's doing network automation now, keep at it, keep doing it. It's not a tyranny of or, you know, you do it or somebody else does it. It's just uh, the, the conversation I'm trying to drive is trying to help network engineering managers or, or uh, people in management understand when might it might be a good time to bring in uh, a, a software engineer dedicated to the networking team. All right, we got a lot to unpack there, like like a lot to unpack. Um, one, one point I want to qualify first, and then Brian, I want to get your opinion on this as well. You mentioned you, Jeremy, are developing tools that other people are using. So your role presently is that of developer. Is that fair? Yeah. So, so I'm a software engineer. You know, I, that was me by trade. And now I, I present myself as a software engineer as part of the network engineering team. I am dedicated to that job of building tools for the, the networking team, the other groups uh, to interact with the networking team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm 100% software developer for the networking team. Now, Brian, in, in your world, I mean, you, you've joined an organization um, just recently here. As you've observed how they're organized, is that, do you see something similar? Yeah, actually, it was it was really interesting. Um, you know, uh, from, from my previous job, there was nobody take, to pick up the mantle for um, for automation, at least on the, on the network side, right? If you wanted something, you kind of grabbed a snippet, you edited what you need to, copy it, paste it back into a terminal, and you're good to go. Uh, here, there is a development team. It actually started in the networking group, and guys started getting really good at it, and they've transitioned into like full-time uh, developers. And so there's a couple of things that are happening, I think, and it's it's really forward-thinking, where the networking guys that are coming in to fill that spot don't have a lot of, of automation or scripting abilities or knowledge. And there is a real push to get us to to learn those things, to be able to communicate that with uh, with the developers, define how, how we need to do our own workflows, and we're sort of approaching it as a, as a team effort. Where I don't, I don't know how to script. I know what I need for the thing to do, the end results do, but I just don't know how to get there. And those guys don't know what the end result is until I tell them. So it's it's really kind of a, a partnership in, in in that respect. One big point here, Brian. You mentioned you have developers at your disposal. Just for clarification, is there anybody dedicated to your team, or is there just a pool of developers and one of them might get your project? So it's it's sort of a there's there's sort of a pool. They they. They are a resource for I don't know the system side, maybe the storage side, and the and the networking side. There's some desire for you to to sort of do the the development your, yourself, but they are. But if it's a if it's a big task, you know, you run it like any other project, um, and uh, it, you, you try and carve out some of the time uh, with those developers, um, work with them, uh, define what you need to do, and, and really just kind of run it as a how do we get this thing done? If they're simple questions, they're little one-offs. You want to change a, a VLAN on a switchboard or whatnot. They're more than happy to to go hey, adjust your code in this particular way. How do you draw the line between some little thing that you could build for yourself, and when is it time to go over to a developer, or or is it more they've already given you tools and maybe you need the tool changed? See, that's a that's a good question. Um, I, I think it might actually differ from from person to person. Uh, I, I tend to be quite type A, and I'll run my head in, up against a wall for a long time before I go and say, "Hey, uh, please tap out and help me out." <laughs> um, 
So, because I, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to waste their time. And I, and I guess I, I, I know what my resources are for me. I think my limit is probably about, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 lines of code. And then I'm going to start going, I could use some help and maybe we could, we can do some better things. Also, and and so there's there's that there's sort of that underlying, um, you know, write write this line, write this line, write this line. But if you want to present that tool to like the like a service desk, you need something. Uh, you need a web front end. That's way beyond my skills, and I don't really want to jump into it. So I would, you know, I would certainly leverage that kind of help. How do we wrap this up and make it pretty? There's a few things here. There's, I think, a lot of people start off with automation by writing little individual tools that make their life easier. It's easy to bang out a script that handles some repetitive thing, and it doesn't need to be especially robust or resilient. Uh, but Jeremy, you were talking in the your, your intro there that it, at, there comes a point where you need a tool that's got enough complexity and maturity about it and 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 it can last it's uh, it can be maintained and you can count on the thing being there how do you draw the line between i'm doing some easy scripts for fun and so i can hack them together myself versus i need a developer with grown-up programming skills to build me a tool so it's a great question and and i believe that there's a very simple answer to it it's if the software is going to be used outside of your team then it needs to have a sense of durability and reliability and treated as a software product because that's how the consumers of that software are going to think of it. You know, if they're going to say, uh, hey, you built us a chat bot in Slack that helps us, you know, do our operations, you know, at ballparks, for example, and they rely on that tool to operate, you know, 24 by 7 at any point in time, you know, they're expecting a user experience like any quality software product. And to deliver that quality software product, takes a lot of software infrastructure in order to deliver it. Not just the coding skills. I mean, the coding skills are, are one piece of it, but the, all of the, the tests, the QA, deploying it to the cloud, all the things that make that a deliverable at, at durability um, is what a software engineer brings to the table. So that's how I, I demarket. If it's something that is, is given outside of our team that they depend on is the time in which you have to treat it like a software product. That's a good way to put it. I, I kind of give a, a one more step on that as well. And like, I don't know if I hit the lottery or a bus hits me tomorrow and I can leave this organization. I don't want my homegrown scripts that only I know about um, to have to be maintained by the rest of the team. Right. So that there almost needs to be uh, within that group. If you're developing scripts to help your, your daily job out, you need to at least tap your tap your friend or your your coworkers and say, hey, this is what this does. This is how the script works. And I mean, it can take 10 minutes, it can take an hour because, I mean, they're going to need it too. So I agree with you very much that, you know, nobody should be, you know, the, the you know, the single point of failure or loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, it happens. I mean, you know, you can't, can't say it doesn't. But in, in your case, the way you described it, you have a, a pool of software developers in a team that, that you can kind of rely back on. You know, if somebody builds you some software that you're, you're using and you trust and say, you know, Bob goes out for vacation, there's somebody else in that team presumably, you know, they kind of do peer reviews and other people would be able to support it. But that's not always the case. You know, it's it's definitely something that as if I was a manager or a director of a team, it's something that would play on my mind. What happens, you know, if Jeremy's gone or, you know, Bob is gone, what do we do in this case? But I think it's an orthogonal, you know, decision yeah. point, to, to be honest. How do you define team in this context? Because if I, I've worked with some very large organizations where teams were, I've been on a team that had five architects and we managed uh, engineers that worked not for us directly, but we were there, you know, kind of gave them direction and so on. And I've worked for smaller organizations where 
the team of five did everything and it was me and Bob and Sue and Fred and that was it. And so we did it all. So how do you define team here? I'll take a crack at that. There's, there's actually two elements of this question that I want to bring up. A person could work in a group of people, right? Let's say you're a part of a, a network engineering team and there's five people and they all do their jobs. But a lot of times they probably do their jobs independently, meaning, you know, Bob does one thing, Susie does a different thing, and they don't do, you know, pairing, you know, like as a software engineer, often you do pair programming or peer reviews and things of that nature where you're co-developing a solution together. Um, in networking, I'm not sure if that's, you know, as prevalent. I'm not a network engineer, so I don't know, you know, the ins and outs of that. But oftentimes I see, you know, network engineers kind of being part of a team, but they're very independently task driven, like they're doing the whole thing. They're not breaking it into little pieces and subdividing the pieces of work. Whereas in a software project and a significantly large one, you could architect that software project and kind of give out pieces. And then you're doing that co-development of software and integration together. And you're doing that in a, you know, dare I say CI, CD pipeline kind of experience, you know, you're iteratively co-developing. So, you know, I kind of get a nuance on the word team to begin with, because it really depends on the interaction of what you're doing. I think, you know, I could be part of a team, but doing all the work, or I could be a part of a team where we've broken the, the work up and we're interacting. Best teams I've been on have been, have been where, I don't know, everybody's got, the, every network guy has their own uh, interest in things. Uh, you know, some are wireless, some are uh, WAN, some are switch, right? Typically what I've found was that uh, if you're sort of project related or project oriented, you know, if I'm, if I'm the wireless guy, I would, I would do a, uh, start running a project, I'd build out the architecture. And then once I have this, this basic framework, I can go to the rest of my team and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. Where do you guys, you know, how do you guys think about it? And it, and it tends to been, build some cohesity among the people that you work with. Uh, that's actually another question I've got is, Jeremy, you're a, a software developer. How do I, as a network engineer, communicate with you what my needs are? Do I need to be a programmer or you know, have some knowledge of programming to be able to effectively communicate with you what I need? Or is it your job to, to translate all of that for me? I don't believe that a network engineer needs to, quote, speak programmer to, to interact with programmers. They just have to have good communication skills or document what they're really trying to do in a way that the software developer can consume it. And to a more extreme, start storing that information in a way that a, a programmer can consume it. And I'll give you an example. Let's say that we store information in spreadsheets, right? That's very common uh, to do. You know, network engineers like to put stuff into spreadsheets. And if things are stored in a particular way that is more consumable by a programmer, then it's very easy for the programmer to write programs against that spreadsheet. And then when changes occur in that spreadsheet, you know, they can just simply rerun the program against that spreadsheet. But if the data that you put into the spreadsheet or the structure or organization of that spreadsheet is not conducive to automating, then it becomes a point of friction. So where a programmer can help the network engineer is they can look at the information that the network engineer is trying to share. And then as a first step, help organize and structure that data in a way that they start being more efficient together. It has nothing to do with, you know, kind of quoting speaking programming. It's really just organizing the data in a way that both sides can communicate it and use it most effectively. That makes sense to me. Uh you know, Brian, have you had some dealings with uh, coders at this point? Can comment on that? Um, not in the new position, not some, not just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, in my my older position, there were a couple of us that, that tried to hack through some uh, you know some Ansible scripts and and or playbooks, 
And uh, what we found pretty quickly was that the network was so unstructured that it became almost untenable to try and, and do any kind of scripting until we got some more uh, standardization across the playing field. I think uh, I think having that programmer sit with me and look through what what we were trying to do, having his expertise to uh, just to hear what kind of challenges he was going to have to start writing scripts. Yeah, we sort of waved off and then and tackled our problem a little further down the stack. We'll be back to this podcast shortly, but we're going to talk about ExtraHop, a Packet Pusher sponsor first. Your job probably includes managing applications, network infrastructure, and so on. But how do you do that when you can't even see everything those apps are running on? When half the network the app is running across isn't even yours? Add to that SDN changing things in automated ways that maybe feel out of your control? Or devs and other business units firing up their own cloud instances and then expecting you to support it even though you've got zero instrumentation. These scenarios are some of the ways that ExtraHop can help. ExtraHop is a leader in network analytics and they help you consolidate tools into their analytics platform and make sense of application performance running over infrastructure that's sprawled beyond your data center and across the internet and then into the cloud. ExtraHop offers complete visibility and leverages machine learning to help you make sense of the mountain of metadata about your network. And in the end, you can make informed decisions about your IT stack and do it quickly. If you go to extrahop.com slash packet pushers, you can find out more about the ExtraHop performance platform. Once more, that is extrahop.com slash packet pushers. And now back to the show. Jeremy, in our notes as we were uh, prepping for this show, I put in a question about does an ops team need a dedicated developer? And you countered and said, well, does a networking team need a dedicated developer? Because those are different questions. In, in my mind, they're kind of the same because I look at the convergence of networking as a discipline that's slowly but surely being absorbed into larger ops functions, but yet you're suggesting that there's a strong difference between the two. Explain what's going on in your head there. It kind of goes back to the, the question, you know, are we building something for ourselves or for other people? So let's imagine that you're part of a networking team that does both networking engineering and operations. And when I hear the word operations, it means these are the people that are being on call. They're the ones responding to issues. They're, they're mostly troubleshooting problems. You know, the way I've traditionally seen the, the, the bifurcation of engineering versus operations is engineering are the people that design and implement changes. They're the ones that push those changes out and they might do some testing to make sure that the changes that they deployed are operationally working. But then then it's kind of, quote, thrown over to operations. And that's kind of the day to day. Oh, hey, my phone's not working. Is it the VLAN or, you know, can you bounce this board or, you know, that's operations. And so if you're all part of the same team meaning you all report to the same, you know, director or the same manager, and you all kind of shuffle responsibilities, you know, like maybe this week you're on operations rotation and the next week you're designing a network. It's different than if the quote operations team is a, a totally separate organization. They're, they're measured differently. They have a different set of tools and a different set of operational processes. And that's, that's how I kind of make that differentiation because the tools that you're building are going to be different tools, I believe. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. So, it, it, and this again goes back to our size of the organization point from earlier. If you're in a small organization where a lot of functions tend to get rolled into just a few people, then, you know, there, there isn't a distinction to make versus a larger organization that, yeah, you've got an ops team. And like you said, they're the, the triage folks and troubleshooting and the knock maybe gets rolled in there. And then you've got an engineering team. Maybe you've also got an architecture team and, you know, and so on. So, all right. So, so let me, let me rephrase the question then. Now we have some context. 
does a network team, and you know, these would be you know, engineers, architects, people with you know, um, you know that sort of level of responsibility. Do they need a dedicated uh, developer, someone that's going to work with them, and their primary function as a developer is to build tools for them? So I would say absolutely yes, because that's kind of my job, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> because that's the team I work for, and uh, and I'll tell you why. Um, you know, things begin in the network engineering team from the point of view of we're going to build a new network or we're going to make changes to the existing network. And so, you know, when when things happen with the network, they originate out of the network engineering team, you know, presuming they're also the architecture team. So if you're, say, building out a new campus or a new data center or something of that nature, it's the network engineering team that's going to understand that design and you're going to understand which tools you're going to need to facilitate the, the automation of that design and build out and then even you know, making sure that when that design is uh, finally built and pushed out and created into the network, that is actually operationally ready. You know, I use the term uh, network ready for use. So once the engineering team says, hey, this network is, re is ready for use, we're gonna hand it over to the operations team. Well, then from that experience that the developer then understands you know, what tools or capabilities the operations team is going to need. And in, and in many cases, a lot of the tooling that was used to develop the kind of the deploy the new network or deploy the changes can be then used in some capacity, either in whole or, or refactored so that the operations people uh, can use it. For, so for example, let's say that the networking team used a bunch of Ansible playbooks in order to build and deploy their network. Well, uh, and some of those playbooks may be used to make sure that the, the network is ready for use, like, you know, are things operationally correct? And you can write playbooks to do that. Well, then maybe those same playbooks would be used by the operations team, but maybe they wouldn't be typing, you know, Ansible playbook, yada, yada, yada. Maybe they're using Ansible Tower with, you know, point and click interface to take advantage of those tools and so forth and so on. So because, you know, the, uh, the elements of the network begin uh, from the network engineering point of view, you, you kind of have the holistic view of what needs to happen and then from there, you can see, you know, the network operations team, what are they going to do with the network? And then you also have the perspective of the users of the network, you know, the people who are actually consuming services and what they might want to, to understand what the network is doing or how they can interact with it. Um, ultimately, um, I believe that the, the, the largest significant value of, of network automation is as it, uh, as it is applied to people outside of networking. The more people that touch that software and use that software every day, the more uh, important and valuable it is to the organization. Which is to say, you know, if you're a network engineer and you're writing Ansible Playbook to help you do your job, that's great. And I'm sure your, your company, you know, values that. But if, if somebody's building software that touches 100 people and that helps 100 other people, it has a, it's a higher kind of touch point value. Um, and that's, I think, when people start to decide, do we need to hire more resources or invest more into doing more network automation? It's how does that, what's the ROI of, of that investment? So that's actually kind of interesting, Jeremy, is that um, it, there's, there's two things that kind of caught my, my attention. One of them is that this is either what, you, what you're describing at least sounds like a, a mature or a maturing organization, um, which is sort of where I, where I landed um, in this particular role where um, the hiring manager says, look, we intentionally keep our, keep our team small so that we have to focus on automation. We have to do these things. Otherwise, we'll get overrun. 
And I thought that was kind of a, a unique and unique perspective from a, from a manager, right? <laughs> yeah. So the way I would kind of trans translate that is, is if I, if I was a manager uh, of a traditional network engineering team, network operations team, I, I look, I look at the capacity of that team, you know, what, it, what, what is the capacity that they're running at? And, and maybe they're running at a hundred percent, meaning, you know, they're working, you know, more than eight hours a day, they're working weekends, they're working nights, they're trying to keep the lights on, so to speak. Right. And when you, when you have zero capacity, there is absolutely no time to learn or build. And then this to me is the main thesis of, to me, this is the main thesis of bringing in a software engineer is because you need to create capacity in order to allow other people to learn and grow because otherwise they're just, they're just trying to empty the, the water out of a sinking boat. And, and that's kind of the lesson that I learned by reading the Phoenix project, which is where I learned most of my stuff is from DevOps and those guys. Um, and that, and that ecosystem of folks, um, you know, uh, you have to you have to find a way to increase capacity in the team. And sometimes, you know, doing more takes more. And, and in that case, that's why you would hire a software engineer or a consultant or somebody to to help give you the capacity so that you can uh, start investing in, in automation time. One of the things that hasn't come up in this conversation yet is that, oh, well, once we get all this automation stuff and, you know, Jeremy, the super developer, builds all these automation tools, we can get rid of some headcount. <laughs> That hasn't come up because that's I, I haven't heard of that happening anywhere. And, and two, three years ago, that seemed to be one of those questions. You sit on a panel and one of the things that gets asked is, well, am I going to lose my job to the robots? You know, and, and, and no. The, I, I, have you guys heard anything different than that? I've always scoffed at that. And, and only because I have the benefit of looking at the history of DevOps. You know, the people 10, 10 15 years ago with DevOps, they said, oh, are tools like Puppet and Chef going to get rid of sysadmins? I mean, come on, we can look at we can look at what has happened. And the, and the answer is clearly not. It's, you know, there are people who simply have better tools that allow them to be more efficient in their jobs. And the people who are engineers who can utilize those tools better will become more efficient. What it means to a business is, is as they grow and scale their business, they simply just don't have to hire more people. So it's not so yeah. much that we're going to get rid of people. It's all it's always about, you know, how can how can a business grow? or maintain, you know, growth pattern without trying to hire more people to do the, you know, to do the work because, you know, people cost money and there's only so many people you can put in a building, et cetera. Um, it just doesn't make sense. Which goes back to your point, Brian, it sounds like that's the context in which uh, you came on board. They're, they're doing automation because they don't want to have to hire more bodies. Kind of. The, the, I think there's two things that I'm, that I'm finding here. Pretty, I mean, this has been a pretty recent change, but uh, yeah. the thing that I'm seeing is that um, it isn't just about, no, we're not going to hire anybody else and we're going to keep it small so that you have to do in, you know, automation. The goal is, is to do your job better and give you more time to do those things, Jeremy, like, you, you know, like, like you'd mentioned, where you're not always on the bucket brigade trying to throw water on the, on the burning building, right? We want to be able to have more time to grow professionally, to do things more efficiently, and cut the bottom line for the business. I think it just hit every Dilbert slogan <laughs> on that one, didn't it? <laughs> so, so, Jeremy, here, here's something else I want to understand. So, in this team dynamic where I've got uh, a developer that's now at my disposal as an engineer, you're, are you on my team? Am I going through my manager who's going over to your manager to hand you this job? How does this work organizationally? The way it works for me is I am part of the network engineering team. So we all report to the same awesome person, right? That allows this, this magic to happen. Hmm. There is no, let me get approval. Let me, you know, put me on the roadmap for the other team. The scenario that Brian describes, you know, I have seen from my vendor years is always a source of failure over time. In particular, many times when 
I was working with, say, cable companies or service providers, they had a, quote, tools team. And every time that the networking team needed something, they would try to go to the tools team to get that thing done. But they were always told, oh, well, we're really working on that thing that makes money for the company. And you're really just infrastructure. So we're not going to give you any cycles or, you know, put a feature request in and maybe you get it six months. And the network engineers are like, no, I need this tool for next week when I'm trying to do a deployment at two in the morning. And so they never get cycle budget. I think going into an organization where it's structured with separate teams as pooled resources, as long as you're cognizant of that, and, and if there are you know, methods and procedures to you know, address that concern, I think you're fine. But a lot of times, I've never really seen it work well. So I'm dedicated to the networking engineering team. You know, I am their blacksmith, as, as oh. I like to think. Well, that's exactly the way I asked that question because I've, I'm familiar with the scenario of you ask for a resource and it goes through two different managers, maybe three, and it gets added to a project queue and the chance of you actually getting that resource gets deprioritized if it doesn't seem to the business that, oh, that's not a money-making project. I need this dev working on this customer-facing thing that uh, makes us more money and get those new features out and, and it just gets deprioritized forever and you never get the tool that you need. And I think that's what happens to a lot of folks is like, screw it. I know I'm never going to get that as a resource. I'm just going to have to build it myself and do the best I can uh, building it myself. And I, I, I think a lot of folks find themselves in that situation as opposed to what you described. To me, Jeremy, the dedicated dev to a network engineering team is got to be cutting edge, a pretty rare thing. Yeah, I, I, there's another benefit to it, which I think goes a long way in two directions. One is, is if I was a network engineer and I've started my journey, you know, maybe even a year ago and I've done some Ansible and I've started tinkering around with Python and, and whatnot, and I really want to, you know, elevate my capability you know, what are your options to do that? I mean, other than just self-study at home, you know, uh, I'll turn it around. You know, let's say that you're, you play the keyboard. Let's say, hypothetically, Ethan, that you play music and you, you know, play the keyboard and you start, you know, you know, maybe you watch some videos, maybe you bought a book on tape and you start playing around and you're like, hey, I really like doing this. What would you do? You would go and take lessons. You know, you would, you would go to somebody who's an expert that can guide you show you where you can improve your skills, teach you the methodologies in order to how to do that. We like to call that mentoring. You know, I, I believe that the, the, the single strongest uh, long-term value of having a dedicated software developer for networking is that they will be able to mentor the folks that want to uh, improve their skills, which doesn't mean that they're going to be software developers, nor should they need to be. But, you know, if somebody wants to write an Ansible playbook and they run a, or a Python script, they're like, well, what would be the best approach here? How should I do this? How should I structure my data? Which library should I use? You know, there, there's a million ways to do anything in software and having somebody that can say, you know, look, I, I get what you're trying to do. Here are three different libraries, you know, that I would recommend you use versus spend three days trying to figure out which three libraries I should use. I mean, goes a, a really long way in terms of, of mentoring. And then in, in Brian's case, where you're working with software engineers that don't have a lot of perhaps networking background, in being an embedded, immersive environment of learning the, the nuances of what networking means and the vernacular of networking, because we all know what you know LDP is and BGP, and you know we take these things for as second nature. A software developer doesn't. You know they need to be immersed in that lingua so that they can become you know cognizant of when you say, oh yeah, we need to build redundancy between these leaf pairs. They go, okay, you know I've been here long enough. I get I get that. I know what that means. So if I'm a manager listening to this and I'm thinking about how the different IT groups are organized and I've, you know, I'm thinking, geez, okay, so I'd have to 
commit a developer to the network engineering team. Maybe this manager is pondering this and, and getting it into their head as a possibility. Then they get to that part of the thought process. Yeah, but I got to demonstrate an ROI to the business for that. I got to prove to them that if I dedicate this human to this team to develop these tools, we get a payback for that investment because all of a sudden I can't use that developer for these other things. I just dedicated him to network engineering. How do you calculate that ROI? I would love to answer that question and I will, but I want to give Brian a chance to, to like <laughs> talk, talk as well. Uh, so, you know, um, I, I definitely want to answer that question because I think I have a good answer, but Brian, I don't know if you have something you'd like to, to jump in before I, I hog the mic again. You know, that one, that, that's, wow, that is a tough question. I think um, because I don't know, every IT organization I've worked at, it, it's always been, Hey, you guys are a cost center. So yeah. I remember taking a course uh, just years and years ago, and it was for this idea on how do you, how do you change the business's mind or their mindset from you're a cost center to you're actually helping people do work, right? Because I don't know, someone shows up in the morning and they don't have email. The first thing they do is they call IT and go, how come I can't, I can't read my messages. So I, I, I kind of wonder if one of those ways to get um, to to get a dedicated developer, um, I think you'd almost have to be able to measure those those intangibles, right? How how effective can with this particular tool? How effective can you do? Can you be at like I don't know, reducing tickets or um, reducing the time uh, 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 a time to resolution? Um, can we standardize all this stuff on a, on a particular deployment or a particular, um, you know, project? And it's hard to actually measure those things outside of just a, like a time value of, of your employee. Some of it almost feels like there's, maybe it's got to be a seat of your pants, like it's instinctively, if you understand how your organization works and you know where the bottlenecks are in your organization and you go, okay, if I put a developer and assign them to this team and the tools get built, that bottleneck goes away. That's again harder to measure brian in your right. i know you're new to this org but do you have dedicated dev resources or are they a shared resource you you get some time with i want to say there's three or four developers and they are a shared resource to the infrastructure team and again i i couldn't tell you how busy they are right now from from doing some other some, some of the other projects but from from what i'm hearing just from the people around me that um they are they are eager to help um uh, the network group hmm. Um, but I learned when, I, you know, in, in the many, you know, years that I was, you know, out in the wilderness trying to sell, you know, the concept of network automation to, to network engineers. The, the one major lesson that I learned is, is people don't know what they don't know, right? You know, they can't imagine a thing that they don't know, right? So, you know, imagine you've never eaten ice cream or you don't even know what ice cream is. And somebody says, hey, you know, should we uh, buy a bunch of ice cream for the birthday? And people are, or what, what flavor of ice cream should we buy? People are like, what's ice cream? You know, like there's always the, the thing that they don't, they, they have a, there's a blindness. There is a, you know, there's a blindness to what they don't know or why they should, should do a thing, no matter what it is. And so the best advice I can, I can do is, is really kind of, you know, shed some light on that blindness. You know, if, a, if a business has said, look, we, as a, as a strategy for our company, want to do more network automation, you know, that comes from the above. You know, not from the bottom up, but from above. They say, you know, look, as a business, we're automating, you know, all the other things, cloud, server, storage, whatever. And the network, you know, we got to, quote, do more automation. You know, uh, the, the networking engineering leadership, they have to come up with a strategy, right? And they have to determine, well, you know, why would I want to hire a software engineer? You know, is, is hiring a software engineer part of my strategy? And what value does that person bring to me? 
So I've got like maybe three or four bullet points that I'll, I'll kind of rattle off and then we can touch on any of them in, in more particular. But when you're talking about doing software automation, even little scripts to full-blown quote, not products, it's very hard to estimate how long or how complex that software project is going to be, right? So if you're the if you're the network engineering manager and you're you're professing to your leadership, oh, if we if we do more network automation, it's going to be grand. They're going to be like, okay, well, how quickly can it get done? You know, so that we can start taking advantage of that. Estimating software is hard and complicated, and I know great software engineers who struggle with this. There is no there's no easy button for somebody to say, well, how long is that going to take, and how complex is that? But having somebody that has been through the, that, the gearing of doing software estimations uh, can really be a valuable asset to a, a manager who has not traditionally dealt with software developers because they're going to have no concept. They're blind to that. So a, a network uh, manager might say, oh, you know, sure, why can't you just write an Ansible playbook that does the blah, 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 blah thing? Because I've been hearing from my vendors that it's so easy, you know, quick start with whatever, and you should be done within an hour. When the reality is, is that's just completely, you know, absurd. You know, some things might take two or three days, you know, to learn it the first time. And then maybe the second time it takes a few hours. But setting a reasonable amount of, of expectations, I think, is the single biggest value having, you know, a software engineer in early on. I, I don't know how you would, quote, calculate the ROI other than to say you can de-risk, you know, your your management expectations with other people by having somebody who, who has an idea of what's going on. I'm going to rattle off a few others real quick. I'm not going to talk about them. Hmm. You know, I've already talked about like choosing the right approach. Um, collaborating with uh, other teams is a big asset. Uh, I've spoken about mentoring. And then I've also spoken a little bit more about creating capacity by having somebody who can come in and, and give you some daylight so that you can, you can build more. Those are some of the really big reasons I think a software engineer can, can immediately help out. Yeah, we're going to pause our podcast discussion for a word from our sponsor today, IT Pro TV. IT Pro TV, they are flexible online technical training. Why training? Training helps you take advantage of the career paths that are available in IT. And IT has an incredibly strong career path right now. A recent MIT study shows that IT occupations have grown by nearly 20% between 2004 and 2017. That is more than eight times the growth rate of other career paths. Earnings are growing for folks in IT as well, even though earnings are flat for college grads on the average. IT Pro TV can help you take advantage of these IT career trends with courses covering CompTIA and Cisco and EC Council, VMware, and lots more. There are over 4,000 hours of binge-worthy, on-demand training content out there for you. The hosts that are presenting the information, they're doing it in an engaging, a talk show kind of a format to keep you paying attention. And they're live every day if you like live content, but then that live content goes studio to web in 24 hours so you can stream it whenever you're ready. Courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, and job roles, so you can find what you're looking for without a lot of headache. You can stream the courses, a course live or again on demand via any method you're looking for, Chromecast, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, PC, their iOS or Android apps. You've got all those sorts of choices. And the big idea here, make it easy to learn your stuff, then go pass your exams, earn your certs, and then land your next great job with the help of training from IT Pro TV. So how do you do it? Visit itpro.tv slash packet to take advantage of their lowest prices ever. That's itpro.tv slash packet. 
itpro.tv slash packet. And when you use the code packet25 at checkout, you will save an additional 25% off your membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. Just be sure to use that code packet25 at checkout. That is packet25. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. And now back to the show. It's a huge point you made there, which is um, you need the right person for the job. So if the job is building a tool, that is what a software developer knows how to do, as opposed to a network engineer that we're technical people. Maybe we have some familiarity with coding, but what we're better at is designing and implementing and operating networks, not sitting down and writing code, writing a configuration uh, stanza that goes into a, a Juniper box or a Cisco box is not the same thing as a software development language and, and a proper methodology and troubleshooting and doing QA and all that stuff. It's configuration instead. So there are some parallels I guess you could draw. But for a manager to think, ah, my, my network engineer, that's a smart person. They can figure out this whole automation thing and, and they can figure out coding. It's just one more thing to learn. How hard can it be? And, and as you also pointed out, Jeremy, vendors sometimes make a lot of this seem easy um, because they have things to sell. And so who wants to make it hard, right? You want, you want it to seem easy so that people will, will buy into uh, these schemes, but when you put it that way, you know, the right person with the right skills that's appropriate for the job, I know how to drive a car. Do I know how to tear down an engine and put it back together? No. And even if I watch a YouTube video because I'm a car enthusiast and I find it interesting, doesn't make me qualified to be pulling an engine apart. I can tell you that right now. So again, that, that right person for the right job thing, I don't want to belabor it, but you just it really hit me as an important point that I think maybe a lot of people mix because we conflate being technical or nerdy with being able to do anything that's in the technical or nerdy realm. That isn't necessarily the case. Yeah, but there's something that I, I really want to touch on because it, 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 it you know, it kind of hurts me, you know, on the inside when, when I hear people talk about their, network engineers are doing or not doing something because they're smart or not smart. Network engineers are very smart people uh, across the board that I've met because they're dealing with one of the hardest problems uh, on the planet, which is a complex distributed system built by different vendors, you know, dealing with software that they can't control and not having any rational control over it, you know. They, they talk about, oh, testing in production, how novel. And I'm like, well, bitch, we do that all the time. You know, it's like, that's called networking. Sorry. You know, we, <laughs> we, we test in production because that's all we have. I mean, like, yeah. We do. <laughs> uh, it is not, you know, I'm very, I'm very um, strongly opinionated that it's not a function of whether or not a network engineer is smart enough to do programming or automation. I, I know most of them are. It's a function of time, yes. right? If you are operating at 100% capacity, and you have no time to learn and practice, and I'm going to stress the word practice a new skill, then you will not, you will not do it. You know, I work with, um, you know, really smart people in the networking team and I showed them, you know, Ansible stuff and they're like, wow, this is really great. But, you know, I'm really, really busy and I have all these other things I got to get done and I really don't want to futz with, you know, writing a playbook myself. Could you please write me this playbook to do this? And I'm like, sure, I can do that because they can tell me what it needs to do. And I can build them, say, a Jinja template that they give me the config because I don't know the magic config. They say, here's a config I wanted to do. Here are the five variables I need to populate a million times. And I, and I could easily you know, produce that for them. And what that does is it gives them uh, something to look at later. They can go, okay, 
you know, I told Jeremy what I needed to do. I understood the problem. He built me a, a, an Ansible playbook and some data files. And now when I do have a little bit of daylight, I can review that, see what he did, ask him some questions. But it, it, it gave me, you know, an instant tool so that I could get the job done. And now maybe next time, you know, they would take a crack at it. But if you don't have somebody to fill that gap in the initial part of the equation to create more capacity, they'll never get the time. So it's not about intellectual capacity because they've got that. It's, it's about time capacity, which they do not generally have at all. Yes, I think it's interesting you say that, Jeremy, because I knew really, really early on I did not want to be a programmer. That just wasn't in my nature. I, you know, I loved the other side of the house. But I also know that it was important for me to at least understand a little bit about how those languages worked and how they, you know, and how they flowed and some of the logic behind it. Which I think is why I would need someone like you to be able to, to talk to and say, you know, like you said, uh, I show you exactly what you know what the output is, describe the variables that need to change, and then I can actually look at your script and go, oh, well, geez, that makes sense, and and now I can almost duplicate that based on, you know, a different vendor or a different supported model that I have to do. Yeah, I, I call it cake decorating. You know, if, if you're throwing yeah. a birthday party for, you know, your, your kid, you don't want to make the cake. You know, what you want to do is you want to decorate the word, you know, happy birthday Johnny on it, you know, but you don't want to have to make the whole cake and then, you know, put frosting on it and do all that thing. You want to get this kind of almost instant gratification, not because you're lazy. It's just because the amount of time that you have in your day. And it's like, I, you know, I don't have time to learn how to bake or I mean, I have interest. I mean, I like, I like cake, <laughs> but I don't want to be a professional baker, nor do I want to open up my own bakery. You know, I just want to eat cake from time to time. So I, I don't want to invest in the tools and, and the training in order to, you know, make cake whenever I want it also because that would be bad for me. Okay. Maybe, maybe there's some people that have invested time as network engineers. They've invested time into some tools. They've worked on some scripts and so on. And maybe now they're a little confused and they're going, uh, should I have not done that and held, had a developer do it? So what's the difference between just, just basic scripting, simple tools, and full-blown developing? And, and does it matter? Is there a difference that is even worth talking about there? I, I guess another way to put it, is it appropriate to, as an engineer, write some short, helpful scripts, but then leave the heavy development to a developer? Yeah, I'll take a crack at this, and then I'd love to hear what Brian has to say. And I kind of made a point about this at uh, Interop. I was at Interop 19, and we were talking about what is, you know, the appropriate, quote, first hello world for network engineers. And I would submit to the audience that, you know, try to automate the usage of an Excel spreadsheet or a CSV file. Like, because there's no, there's no blast radius to that problem. It's like, you know, can you pull data out of a CSV file or can you manipulate a CSV file uh, or an Excel spreadsheet? You know, because you use those every day, most likely. Right. And if you're the kind of person that used to use Excel spreadsheets and you would make you know, macros you know, in Excel to do computation or I've even seen people generate configs using Excel, you know, where they have like one tab is all their variables and another tab is like fill in the blanks. You know, if that's the level of automation that you need in your job to be successful, then you don't need to be, quote, a developer and build, quote, production programs, you know, build what you need. But you don't necessarily have to write quote, programs to do that, right? One of the, the other, th the really big aha lessons I learned when I was working with customers as a vendor, I tried to teach them, you know, here's a library, write some code, et cetera, et cetera. And I would always kind of fail at that. I mean, I would get maybe 1% aha, you know, people going, oh, okay, I'll go do that. But the moment that I started to use this thing called Jupyter Notebooks or interactive Python, which is really a way to just use Python without writing programs, 
people are like, okay, this I like. This, I don't have to write a program. I'm not debugging it. You know, I enter a few lines of code in, it gives me an immediate response. It almost feels like a CLI. You can get that using uh, this thing called interactive Python. Or if you want to go to the kind of the next, you know, step of that, there's this thing called Jupyter Notebooks, which I really, really like because it allows you to put text and pictures, you know, intermixed with code. So it's almost like reading a mob, you know, methods and procedures document where there's maybe some text that explains what should be done. And then there's a little snippet of code that basically gives you a power boost to do some kind of IP math or, you know, template build a whole bunch of config based on some variables you entered, but you're not writing programs. Like there's a lot of things that people can do that are not quote writing programs. And I think, I think networking vendors have kind of, you know, done the industry disservice by saying, oh yeah, learn this Python, you know, program all the stuff. It's super easy. Use our libraries, you know, buy our products. Um, they try to make things sound a lot simpler than they are when they're not. Again, I, I agree with that. Uh, for me, my pain threshold on programming might be a little lower than, than a, lot of, a lot of the people I've bumped into. I really just want to just automate little tasks I have to do. And I, I, and I think part of it too, when I started learning a little Python was um, I had all these grandiose ideas about the pretty fun end and I can import all of my solar winds databases into the thing and I can do all kinds of crazy stuff. They didn't know how to get there, and, and the more I the more I looked at what I had to do and what I didn't know, it, it became kind of overwhelming. And so at that point, I really could use a I could use a developer to help me help me step through some of these things. Right? I'm just looking. I, I sort of took a, a page from the playbook of, um, but you said, you know, if you want to get into this thing, just write a couple of scripts to to make the job easier. Right? Um, go out there and check versions of code. Those are little. Those are easy things that you can start. Uh, you can start to learn. I think that's helped me even talk to super developers and uh, be able to uh, tell them what I needed and understand when they said, oh, we can do X, Y, and Z to make this thing happen. Because I knew a little bit about, about the program and I tried to do some of these automation things myself. Uh, it just made me, it made me understand what they were saying back to me and we were sort of talking on this page. Brian, how much, how much time did you have to actually pick up those development skills? I mean, is that... Because that's one of the problems we've been talking about. How do you find the time to do that when you're already pretty well, you know, maxed out? Is that something you just had to carve out a certain amount of time to to dedicate and pick that stuff up? Absolutely. You know, that was something that that I didn't have much time in the office, and so you know, I saw that as a as an investment in my own career. So when I go home, it'd be I'm going to tinker around uh, on the computer, you know, an hour an hour and a half, and I'm going to tr- start trying to write these little manlets or whatnot. But it was just it was me. Deciding, I want to end up as you know the, the whole guy sitting in the in the in the queue with a long line of routers and switches that he had hand built for his entire career. I didn't do that. I wanted to make it all easy. I wanted to keep up. Yeah, I kind of I kind of want to go back to if your company is trying to form a strategy around how are we going to quote automate the network uh, more. I think it's unfair and unrealistic to you know lean harder on the network engineers to quote, do more in their spare time. I mean, I know most engineers are spending their spare time, you know, reading up on the next CCIE study guide or, you know, they're already fully consumed. And I think it's just unrealistic to expect them to, you know, quote on their own time, you know, come up to speed, you know, which really is kind of a two year journey to become proficient at doing uh, even some more sophisticated, you know, software development or scripting tasks. I mean, I think that's just sadly unrealistic. And they don't know that. I think I think a lot of people just don't know how long or hard something is unless they've done 
that thing, which is back to my point of, you know, setting and managing expectations. So one suggestion that I like to throw out to the universe is network teams do ops rotations, you know, where somebody's on ops, right? They carry the pager. Uh, I would submit that we should start doing dev rotations. You know, if you don't have, you know, a dedicated development team like, like Brian or somebody on your team like myself, then perhaps the answer is, is that management structures dev rotations where, you know, for this week, Jeremy, you know, Bob, you're, you're, you got time to do all the development stuff that you, you know, whether that means you're studying, you're practicing, you're doing, you're fixing technical debt on things that you've done, you know, but there's a set amount of time that is dedicated because the process of doing software development is very, very different from the process of uh, reactionary network engineering, you know, what I would call, um, you know, first responder type of workflow, you know, your, your network engineering or network ops and somebody's like, you know, house is on fire, you know, you got to like put the fire out. And that happens, you know, those, those things really do happen. And you must, you know, make sure your network is, you know, okay. But you can't, as a software developer, you know, if you're thrashing, you know, every hour or two, then your productivity goes to zero. I mean, you know, ask any software engineer to tell you that. So asking a network engineer to kind of co-balance doing their normal job and, you know, learning and, and, and again, I'm going to stress practicing, practicing, you know, practicing software development or, or coding or scripting or making Ansible playbooks, whatever it is, you know, you need a, a set amount of time that you know that you've got to got this safe space of development time that you're not going to get yanked around on because otherwise you'll get nothing done. Mm. Dev rotation. <laughs> Dev rotation. Well, you heard it, it, heard it first. There's different approaches here that we're talking about that imply resource availability. What do we say to those companies where they're just not going to hire a dev? Either the management level doesn't get it or they just the thought of, you know, bringing on another human is just unthinkable for whatever reasons. Should those companies are they better off buying a vendor's automation product? So there's two points to that. One is is they're not serious then they're not serious. Like, you know, they can yep. say, I want network automation, but I'm not willing to, to pay for it. Then they're not serious. That's not a strategy. That's just a wish. It's like a seven-year-old who wants to eat ice cream for breakfast every day. It's like, I'd love to do that, but you know, it's not realistic. Well, so well either, there is, either, it, it, it's trendy, right? I mean, there are those companies that the managers want to be able to say to their peer managers at other companies, yeah, yeah, we're doing automation. Yeah, we got that. Um, yeah, well, you know, more takes more. And, hmm. and I feel very strongly about that. You can't get something for nothing. It doesn't happen. So either, you know, you, you have enough visibility into your organization to warrant hiring a software engineer, or, you know, you go out into the marketplace and you have two choices. One is, is, Buy a product that fits your needs, and sometimes they exist and sometimes they don't. Usually it's a combination of all of the above, you know, so some things that exist that you can use and then some things that don't. You need somebody to kind of glue it all together. And now, you know, we, we're starting to see uh, consulting companies like Network to Code out there that are yeah. offering services to, to give you that boost and uplift. So there are now choices uh, that exist that maybe two years ago didn't really materially exist. And I think as companies are evaluating their strategy for really doing network automation, they have choices now that perhaps they didn't have you know, years ago. I think companies are going to be serious about it when they are driving automation, not from a standpoint of saving time or headcount, but because they have a specific business outcome that they're trying to get to. And automation is a way that it gets them there. That is, they can stand up networks in a faster and more reliable way. You know, I guess that would be one major uh, automation scenario that seems to come up a lot. Um, 
and they need to do that frequently. And so they want to make that investment. And, and as you say, Jeremy, it's an investment um, to, to accomplish that. I think there are some other companies that think of automation as, ah, I can do more with less because it's a thing I buy um, as, a, as a product or, or it's something my engineers are just going to build and, and yeah, things are going to be better because we automated it. And so now they've got you know, more, more time. They don't see the chicken and the egg problem that we've spent a lot of time talking about in this recording. Um, as you say, when this is a serious undertaking, you can't get more with less because you are actually adding more here. Automation is an, is an addition to your environment. It's not taking away configuration work exactly. You're adding a tool set that now needs to be maintained and grow with your business. And that takes people, that takes resources to make all of that happen. Brian, I'm just curious, in the different companies that you've worked with and maybe where you are now, does what is the leaning? Is it towards, I got to outsource this in some way to your base, a vendor tool? I'm going to buy, I don't know, something like like Glueware, NetYCE, or you know, fill in the blank with several different automation frameworks that are out there now that if you invest in the tool, it will do things for you and it's more network engineer oriented, not programmer oriented do you see that as a way forward for or, or that companies have been looking at that as the way forward or is it more we need someone in-house that can develop things for our unique snowflake you know uh, sometimes it's it's not even on the on, on the horizon for for some of the companies i've been with they're just happy people you know the network staff is is doing the firefighting or they're doing all the move changes one which at a time I had done some, uh, I, some of in, in previous jobs have been sort of grassroots. Hey, we need to start focusing on this. We need to start getting our, our heads around doing the automation. Um, all, all the network vendors that, that, you know, that we're putting in here have some form of APIs. We, we could make our job easier. So it was just trying to build awareness from, you know, from, from inside the team and, and up and, and start trying to get some, some future thinking. So I haven't, I haven't heard any, any impetus to go even to a, Consulting company, or buy buy some you know, some shrink box that we can next next finished, and now you're automating outside of, outside of this new job. Uh, that's um, where there actually is that that forward thinking, and we're and there's a desire to mature um, skill set among the among the teams. Um, it's kind of one of the one of the first large companies that I've that I've met that, that really have a sense of of automation is key. Question I would have for you is is you know. How did they come to that conclusion that quote automation is key? Because you know, five years ago, it you know, network automation was a nice to have. And now I do agree with you that more and more companies are starting to realize that you know we must automate the network for reasons, dot dot dot. And maybe those reasons are different for every mm-hmm. every company. But I'm really curious what what you've seen those reasons to be um, you know, from either the company you're in now or the or the companies you've been at. Yeah, I think some of it's just uh, the type of people that, that I'm working with now. Like they are, they engineers. They think like engineers. They they will go home and you know be with their, with their kids, their you know their girlfriends, or whatever mix that that is, right? And so we're all trying to make our jobs just a little bit easier, so we're not fighting all the fires. And I think when you get enough, when you get a, a, a stable enough pool within within that organization that can that is, hey, I'm going to help you develop your skill set. Uh, I think that's that kind of catches. I think uh, I think managers see that your employees start getting happier and they, they feel challenged and they feel like they're they're actually contributing to the direction of the company or to the direction of their, their careers. I think when you when you don't work in those environments it's really hard to especially if you're fighting if you if you have a if you have a really working environment, it's really hard to go home and then try and and try and um, 
build those skills to to go. Okay, now I can at least talk automation a little, you know, in my work environment. But they're going to get it anyway. So you kind of get beat up on on, on some of those ideas, right? I, I'm kind of uh, jaded. <laughs> I've been in the industry for for 20 years, and I'm and, and the argument of network automation is good for the company because it makes your network engineers happy, or it doesn't keep them stressed out, and they can go home and spend time with their families. I think both is a simultaneous. It, it makes me sad to hear that uh, because you know everybody should have time to spend with their families, and you know I mean it's like you work in an organization where they think you they own you 24 by seven. I mean that that would make me very very sad. But if you've worked in organizations that really do care about their employees in that way, I think that's phenomenal. Uh, I have not seen a lot of those. I happen to work for a great company, and I'm very excited about it. But what the the value of software automation to me has never been about does it make the network engineer's job easier or less stressful from a business point of view. Always from the network engineer's point of view, absolutely, no doubt about it. You know, it's great. I I believe in you know career you know satisfaction and you know trying to keep a stable you know sense of stress. But from a business point of view, you know, I think Ethan's question is, what's the ROI? You know, sometimes those questions are very, very easy to answer. And sometimes they're very, very not easy to answer. And so I'm going to tell you a quick story from my past because it, it's going to come back to a point. Let's say that you, uh, you work at a uh, gaming company. Uh, you know, you have these really cool uh, games that people log in to play. And you have a data center. And that data center generates you a million dollars a day in revenue, right? Because People pay to be on, on your game. Now, if you're trying to build a new data center um, and you say, uh, you know, the, the amount of time it usually takes us to stand up a new data center is 30 days, then you have $30 million worth of opportunity cost, right? Simple math. So if it, if it normally takes you, you know, uh, three weeks to stand up a data center, you know, you know what your opportunity cost is. And if you had a tool that allowed you to, you know, deploy and stand up and validate that your data center was operational in one week, then you just saved, you know, you know three weeks worth of millions of dollars and so the cost of that tool is is like almost zero. It's like if you can work with numbers like that and you have that kind of insight into your business, it becomes really, really simple, right? To say, you know, if we spend $3 million and we get an immediate payback of, you know, $19 million the first month, it's, it's, a, it's a no-brainer, right? But a lot of network engineers don't necessarily have that kind of business level insight. I mean, maybe they do or maybe they don't. But when, when you start looking at it in financial terms, Usually that's done at, at kind of higher levels in the organization. Now, the point that I want to come to is this. You can't snap your fingers and have that software done in a week, right? It doesn't, that doesn't work that way, right? Software takes time, right? Especially high quality software that you want to depend on for these purposes take time. So if, if a networking organization is like, hey, we need to build out a data center, you know, next week, you're not going to have the amount of time to develop the software needed to do the thing that you're talking about. So there needs to be a lot more advanced planning to either uh, pick a tool that exists and write, you know, tools, you know, plugins, tools, playbooks, if you're using Ansible around it, not only, you know, figure out what you're going to build, but test it in advance because you don't want to show up to that data center and with this promise of delivering a data center in three days and you've never tested your Ansible playbooks. And so, because <laughs> that happened. <laughs> and um, and then there was a lot of sad and disappointed people, right? So, you know, it's all about the setting of expectation. It's like, yes, you can get this amazing payback, but there is a cost. And a lot of times that cost is that the amount of time that goes into preparing, you know, for that event. And a lot of people don't consider that because they don't know how to measure it and, and prepare for that. So even if you buy something off the shelf, usually it doesn't, it's not push button, do the thing that you want. You know, it's like, 
buy our platform technology and write all these playbooks or write all these plugins or, you know, hire uh, an army of consultants to build the thing that you need uh, in order to achieve push button, get banana, you know, data center. And, um, you know, sometimes there are tools out there, great products that are out to, that do exactly that you need. People should buy those. I am yeah, a big believer in buying software that does the job you need to do. And a lot of times uh, it doesn't exist and you really need to, figure out how much time and effort it's going to be to develop the tool that you're going to use and then decide whether it's worth it, right? Because if you're going to build a tool that costs $3 million and you're going to use it once, you know, and the payback is not $3 million, was it worth it? Like, is the juice worth the squeeze? And, and that's really hard to factor in as well. Uh, and that's again, where software engineers can help out because they, or, or consultants who do this because they can help with that estimation and planning process. Yeah, I think I think the idea is that you know uh, we don't need technology for technology's sake. We we've got to add value to the business. I think that again, that sort of goes back to you know, something I said earlier that IT shouldn't just be a cost center, right? We we do need to be able to evaluate how much this is going to cost the business, what benefit they're going to get out of it. Um, and, you know, and then and then and like I said, some realistic expectations. Yeah, I mean, it, it, to me, what I found people are willing to pay software for is, is two basic problems to solve. And it all stems for, you know, is the network ready for use? One is, is the aha cha cha ching moment. And I picked that up from the DevOps guys. It's aha, you know, we need to stand up and operate a new data center. Cha-ching, data center is up and operational making money for us. That's the aha cha cha ching. And anything that you can do to, you know, decrease the amount of time and increase the reliability in that, in that pipeline, you know, is money. Like that's, that's true ROI. The other one that's really hard is the oh crap to all clear. You know, my house is on fire. How quickly can I get a fire truck and put the fire out? You know, that's the oh crap to all clear. And in networking, we have a lot of oh crap to all, all clear problems. But the, the reality is that, you know, the tools don't exist and you're not going to say, oh, my house is on fire. Let me spend three weeks building a tool to go fix that. That's not going to happen. Right. You know, people are going to put the fire out. But then what they have to do is they have to, you know, you know create technical debt. They have to say or, or make a zero backlog or track this event that happened and say, you know, look, we should write some software that, you know, would help us in the future should this fire, you know, pop up again. And you hear that story come out of uh, folks like Facebook and the, the bigger companies where, you know, they find a problem, they write some software to, to detect and, and maybe even help, you know, resolve it. And then they rinse, lather, and repeat so that over time they've built up this set of firefighting tools. But that one's really hard. And depending on the, on the network and its value to the business, um, that ROI can be insanely high. You know, if you if you have a network where people's lives are on the line, you know, like government or hospitals or whatever, you know, aha, you know, or or uh, you know, oh crap, to all clear is is a, literally a fire drill. You know, it's 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 huge value. And in other cases, it's you know, it's like yeah, today, you know, emails down for three or four hours. Who cares? You know. Well, guys, we've had a. <sighs> pretty lengthy conversation here where we've beat up you know, a lot of ideas around what's a developer versus a network engineer and how do those two roles fit in and when those are actually separate people and how those should be uh, integrated into a, a team. And a lot of that comes down to just how serious are you as an organization with getting network automation done, Jeremy? I thought that was a great point. Um, now, Jeremy, I think you, you, you've maybe got some, some summary points that you want to make, I'm going to guess here, looking at our notes. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, the, the, the thing that I am so impressed by is how far we have come. You know, if I look back in 2014 when, when I was out, you know, evangelizing this to where we are today, it's incredible the amount of progress that we've made. You know, I was at Cisco Live and just to see 
the amount of people and interest and in all of the things going on is just mind blowing. But even such, we're still at the, the beginning stages. You know, if we look back at the history of DevOps, you know, they they really took a very long time to get the high powered business efficiencies that everybody thinks they just, you know, that they enjoy having now. So, you know, while we while we are a long way in, we're still really at the very beginning of things. And, uh, and it's really great to see how, how far we've come as an industry. So for all the people that are, that are just toiling away and learning on their own, you know, keep at it. Um, I think we're getting more and more community and more and more businesses and more and more consultancies out there that are going to really help out. And, and, I, and I do believe that the next phase of this will be some form of you know, adding a software engineer to the development team or, or finding a way to give developer or uh, network engineers, you know, the daylight that they need to refine and hone their skills. Now, Jeremy, you're pretty active uh, socially and uh, do some writing and stuff that's public. Can you share with people how they can follow you? Uh, you can follow me, uh, Network Automaniac, that's NWK Automaniac, uh, you know, on the, on the Twitters. And uh, I will be starting to blog once again. So uh, once that starts coming out, just follow me on Twitter and you'll see the new blogs. All right. And Brian, same question to you. Yeah, um, I'm, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Bytes of Cloud. And uh, when I'm not in automation and all the other tools that we're talking about, uh, I try and get some blogs in at uh, Bytes of Cloud.net. Bytes of Cloud and Bytes of Cloud.net. Thank you very much. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks. And you can find the show notes for this in your podcatcher or at packetpushers.net. And if you go to packetpushers.net, we got a lot of other resources there for you as well. Many other podcasts that are on our podcast network, along with news and uh, technical blogs, all for you there. If you want to harass us about this show and send your comments, you can do that uh, by leaving some comments on the show notes or uh, tweet at packetpushers, and we're on LinkedIn as well. And hey, if you really like what we're doing here at Packet Pushers and want to support us directly, you can do that by becoming a member at ignition.packetpushers.net pushers.net where we put out a technical content that we don't publish anywhere else last but not least remember that too much networking would never be enough